uh, there's good news and bad news about every pulpit switch, and that is one church gets good in and the other church gets the rough end of that, and I'm sorry for y'all, I really am. I, uh, you know, we're certainly glad that uh, Trinity gets to enjoy Carlos, and uh, and uh, certainly glad to be here. It is uh, reminiscent of all the folding chairs. Uh, we labored long in a cafetorium. It wasn't just a cafeteria, it was a multi-purpose cafetorium. We did that, I guess, for about two and a half, maybe three years. And, uh, and at, our, at our school, we were at Norfolk Collegiate's lower school. They wouldn't let us use any of their classrooms. And so all of our nurseries, all of our Sunday schools were in breezeways or hallways. So that's really visitor friendly, it really is. It's, it just really accommodates people who want to come and drop their kids off at the end of a hall. Uh, so you can appreciate that. Um, it is good to be with you. What we're going to do this morning is continue on the sermon series uh, through which um, Carlos has been working. So we're going to continue working our way through Colossians. This morning we come to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to look at the, um, the first four verses. These are pretty foundational verses for all of us, uh, for what it means to be a Christian. But I think, guys, you turn in your bulletin or in your Bibles to that text, uh, the question you have to ask yourself, the, the, the question I'm sure for all of us is, what keeps you going in the Christian life? If you're not a Christian, what is it that you're searching for? What is it that you think Christianity is offering you or extending to you? What motivates, what animates your Christian life? As you think about those things, let me read to you very briefly from Colossians chapter 3. Remember, where we are in the story is Paul's just combated all of these threats to false religion, all of these forces inexorably that are motivating us to want to rely on the flesh, to want to create our own righteousness. Remember, to try and create a holiness that's vapid of any reality. And so as we've seen some of the negative ways in which the Christian life is motivated, he turns the corner this morning and begins to say, okay, so what is going to keep you going after you get the diagnosis, when your children rebel, when you lose your job, when life seems to be going downhill? Since then, the Apostle Paul writes, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. The word of the Lord. So this is God's word. It's without error in any part. It's for his glory and for our good. So one of the things that, um, that maybe you have heard about in recent years is this celebration of June 19th, and it's called Juneteenth. And I don't know if any of you ever heard of the celebration. It's created uh, based on June 19th, 1865. And Ralph Ellison, the great African-American writer, uh, sort of popularized that date. Because what June 19th, 1865 represented was two years, six months, and 18 days after the Emancipation Proclamation. And the reason that matters is that's the first time any slaves in Texas heard about the Emancipation Proclamation. I'm going to be terrible for that webcast. I know I'm going to be all over the place, peripatetic. Um, so imagine that. Two years, two years, six months and 18 days later, you finally realize that you should have been freed. And you were freed by your government that long before. Wouldn't you be angry? You'd be furious at both those that kept the truth from you and also those that knew the truth and still treated you like a slave. 
And that's why in the African-American church, they often celebrate Juneteenth. And they celebrate it today as a mark of liberation, as a mark of victory, spiritually speaking, of course. But I think there's a sense in which we as Christian people can appreciate a bit of that holiday. That is to say, we often live not at all correspondent with what the truth is about us. We don't live like free people. We don't live like empowered people. We don't live like people of hope or joy. My guess is we tend to live a lot like our friends. If you're a non-Christian today, my guess is you look around and if you're saying, is the question of becoming a Christian based on how nice these people are, how good they are, how moral they are, you probably win. (laughs) Many of my non-Christian friends are far better fathers and husbands and workers than I. And so what is different? What will motivate us differently? I think what this text, this very short text is doing is centering us upon our union with Christ. What this text is saying very simply is that our union with Christ has to be the foundation of the Christian life. Our connection dynamically, organically with the living Christ by his spirit is the one thing, the singular thing that has to motivate us day in and day out. Now look at how the text begins. Verse one, seek the things that are above. Or verse two, set your minds on the things that are above. And I gotta tell you, that sounds like spiritual mumbo jumbo to me. I mean, it just sounds like empty talk again. Set your minds on things above. You know, think about heavenly things. And I don't know what that means. I don't know what it means to be thinking about these things that are above. I mean, it sounds like some mystery religion, some Da Vinci Code, doesn't it? That if you have some secret knowledge, some secret set of beliefs, then you'll transcend this earthly plane and be different. But that's not, I think, what Paul is pushing us toward. He is saying, you know, you got to be thinking differently. You have to be centering, focusing your attention on something different. And what is that thing? It's not just what's above, it's Jesus. That's who's above. So what I want to suggest this morning very quickly is that this union with Christ, our connection with this living Christ, changes us, and it changes us in three ways. It helps us set and seek these things that are above. It does it by giving us a new identity, and then new power, and then new hope. Okay, those are my three points this morning. Is that when we focus on our identity with Christ, our union with him, we do understand that we're new people, with new power, with a new hope. So the first thing I think you have to see is that what's, what's incumbent upon us as Christians is that you have to believe something. And we see that immediately in verse 1, don't we? It's the if then. In the Greek, it's a little more pronounced. If then, what's he saying? Or verse 3, 4, or because. Because what? Not because you've been like Jesus, lived like Jesus, you know, thought Jesus' thoughts after him. It's do you have faith in Jesus? Do you trust in Jesus? This belief is principial to all that comes after. And what's this belief about? Well, verse 3, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now remember, he's talking to a little out-of-the-way town. This is a very second-rate town in the Roman Empire. And these Colossian Christians struggling to figure out their new identities, but they're living people, okay? They're listening to this letter being read to them, but he's saying, you've died, and your life is hidden with Christ. What he's talking about, of course, there is that you've been given a new identity. 
Your old self is dead. Your old way of doing life has passed. And you have been hidden with Christ. What does that word mean? That means that you have been united to him. You've been placed in Christ Jesus spiritually. And that makes all the difference in the world because you don't have to have it together anymore. Because you don't have to be a good parent anymore. You don't have to have kids and grandkids that turn out okay. You don't have to retire comfortably and die in your sleep peacefully anymore. What you have instead is a new identity, a new life in Christ Jesus. What he's saying is that old life has died and your new life has been hidden with him. That is, has been so inextricably joined to him that you can't separate it. So that you've had a terrible weekend. You've really done some awful things, and you continue to seem to do those things. Those same things you were doing so long ago, well, you know, you're still struggling with them. When God the Father looks at you, what he sees, because you've been hidden with Christ, aren't those offenses? It isn't that guilt or that shame on your crimson cheeks. It's Jesus. That your well-being depends not on how you're feeling about God, but upon the well-being of Christ. And that gives you great hope. That gives you a whole lot of hope, doesn't it? Because God the Father is satisfied with you. Because your old life has been put away with Jesus, and now you've been hidden with him. And I will tell you, and I think Norfolk people are probably a whole lot like Virginia Beach people, Chesapeake people. My guess is we're all struggling with identity confusion we all really think we're beautiful people when. And we think we're more competent people if. And we tend to value that on the world's metrics, don't we? You really do put a lot of stock in how we parent and how we work and how we exercise and our dress size and our 401k size and whatever happened with our last fit rep. My guess is, is that we're all those deeply insecure people paralyzed by what others think or what we ourselves think about our own sense of being. So this week, just this week, I had two conversations similar in this way. So one's with a young woman who can't seem to stop falling for what we call the wrong kind of guy. And she's sitting with me at Starbucks and she says, "Why? I don't get it because the guy before this was like that and the one before him, what, what's going on? Why aren't I learning the lesson?" And this guy, again, has just treated her terribly and, you know, has been a schmo and she doesn't know why she's fallen for it. And you ask her what it's, life between, what it's like between relationships. What would it be like for you to maybe take a little break, to have a quote-unquote sabbatical from relationships just for a little bit? And she, I can't imagine that. Can't imagine that. Why? Because I can't imagine my life alone. I'm not getting any younger, she says. And you see what's going on there is this crippled sense of self, this broken sense of self, where she really does see her identity on the arm of another person, through the lens of another person. And that's distorting and, frankly, dehumanizing. Or Friday, having a drink with somebody after work, and this person after work is really, really fearful for his job really nervous about what's going on at GIFCOM and cutbacks. And there's all sorts of uncertainty. And this guy's an older fella. He's not young. He's a grandparent. And what he says to me is, I don't know what it would be like to go home and for the first time in my seemingly successful career have to say, you know what? 
I'm not sure what I'm going to do next. Because with the Navy and then with contracting, there was always a next, and it was very secure. And you see very quickly how this man's identity similarly has been disfigured, how it's been tethered to his work, his sense of identity being in, I'm valued by what I produce. And wouldn't you say Virginia Beach just enslaves us like that? Wouldn't you say our culture does that? Tells you your teeth aren't white enough? Tells you that you're not in shape? That your kids all need to be above average? That you need to retire successfully and comfortably? That you really should be living close to the water if not on it? You know, that you really should live a life where you don't have to pay any taxes and government really helps you with all these things and streets are safe and 11 carrier groups are maintained and you don't pay anything for it. I mean, there really is a sense in which we want all of that. And what all of that speaks to, doesn't it, is this identity confusion. And what dying with Christ and being hidden with Christ speaks to is you've been given a new identity and it's union with him. It's hope in him. It's hope for what he's done for us, what he did despite us, what he did that we couldn't possibly do. But it's not just that new identity that union with Christ brings. It's new power. Notice verse 1, if then... You have been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. It's not just that you have died with Christ. He's saying you've also been raised with Christ. And you know, we don't know what this means either. Now, we're, we're moving toward this time, aren't we, where we're, we're all in that Lenten period. My hope is, is that you're doing something that has to do with Lent. Something at all that gives you a hunger for Easter. Something that gives you a hunger for resurrection. Because our lives don't really reflect that, typically. Right? Save maybe a spring break to which we look forward. But see, what this speaks to is that we live every day, Lenten or not, in resurrection hope. And what this is saying to you, if you've been raised with Christ, is that today, and I mean literally today, you're in the heavenlies. God sees you as you will be. And his tomorrow is the same as his today. And there is no difference nor any discontinuity between the two. Your life, in other words, is as eternal as his. Your life is as beautiful as his. So that when you're struggling with this sense of what am I going to do and what am I going to become and is my life meaningful and what gives me value and are people respecting me and do I have that sense of credibility culturally, what it's saying to you is you're beautiful because your future is beautiful and your future because it's in Christ Jesus is your today. There is no difference between them. There's no daylight, as we say, between those things. Now, the reason, of course, is because it's saying you have been tethered to the exalted Christ. And this is why, this is why the Old Testament reading is so apropos this morning. Now, we put the Old Testament reading in here because all of us, every day, are trying to build those stairways to heaven. And we're all trying to say, now God's pleased with me because, and God's going to love me a little more when, or God doesn't really care what I do, provided that. Fill in your blanks. But what the stairway of heaven, what Jacob's dream shows, isn't Jacob ascending into heaven, but God descending 
And that, of course, is what the Lord Christ did. That's what we celebrate every Christmas, is that God came down because we couldn't get up. And what we celebrate in Easter is that God takes us up to himself on the backs of his Lord Christ. And that matters. Because then whatever our sexual confusion, then whatever hurt we have from our families, then whatever frustration we feel in the workplace, you know, those things have been mitigated by not just the risen Christ, the conquering Christ. Which puts all of these things, I think, in pale perspective. And my guess is, you struggle to live with any sort of power. That addictions really do seem to rule us. We call them bad habits and foibles and peccadillos. peccadillos. But, you know, we struggle to wonder if we really have any sense of newness or vitality in our Christian lives. And he's saying that same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead is at work in you because you've been raised. You've been raised to, to say no. And so you don't have to excuse your bad temper. You don't just have to say, well, it's lust and everybody struggles with that. You know, I'm not jealous. I'm just, you know, I just wish for different. I'm not covetous. I just kind of hunger for a different body or my hips or knees didn't hurt so much or, you know, that my children respected me more They were more thankful and called me more often, or I don't know what it is. But in that place of longing, in that tender place of hurt, you can say, I have been made complete and satisfied with Jesus. I have power in that way. Now the way that my wife really zeroes in on this with me is she calls it the I hate my life face. Because what she hears me saying, and it's often muttered under my breath, is I hate my life. And what that looks like for me, because I'm such a fight, not a flight person, is anger. That's how I respond to the brokenness, to the lack of vitality in my life, is with anger. And what anger looks like for me is saying, I hate my life. And it could be about anything, right? That my lawnmower doesn't work in the springtime, or you know, that, that I have to you know, continue to just face these mountains of emails or paperwork on my desk that make me crazy or that every seventh day I got to get back in that pulpit and do it again and, and feel like I'm terrible at it. And there's a sense in which, you know, when you get, I think, to this season, right before Easter, you begin to get a little tired as a pastor. And what I do with my fatigue is I just feel sorry for myself. And I play the martyr and I mutter, I hate my life. And all that speaks to is an absence of resurrection reality, a self-absorption, a narcissism that really says, you know what, I've really tried basically since Christmas ended until Easter begins to live this Christian life on my own wits, to, you know, be a parent on my own wits, to be a husband and friend by my own wits, by my own resources and my own gifting. And does it surprise you that, you know, 60, 70 days into it, I'm just about ready to shoot myself, ready to say, you know, this this is terrible. And my guess is my kids would corroborate that, right? Because they feel that prickliness, that lack of gentleness, that lack of humility. Why? Because I've forgotten that union with Christ brings me new power. New power. But it gets better than that. It's not just that we have a new identity and new power. Finally, we have new hope too. Look at verse four. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. 
That first part of that verse really was transformative to me when I was first becoming a pastor. Because I knew what it was like to be like Carlos, where you're just hungry. And you're like always counting numbers. And you're always worried about who's coming and who's not. And how to reach this community. And how to have some sort of respectability. And I will tell you, I think Norfolk is maybe a little worse in that account than, Norf- than Virginia Beach. Where if you're worshiping at a school, people in Norfolk tend to think you're a cult. And, uh, you know, it's 1637, right? So anything new is a bit suspect anyway. But you're in a school and you're an evangelical church and you're a little frou-frou, <laughs> a little odd and maybe a little dangerous. And so you're insecure and you're striving. And what I found is that I had forgotten the first part of this verse, when Christ, who is your life? Because what I wanted to be my life was to be a successful pastor, right? Church planter guy that builds it. And and there wasn't anything successful about Trinity. There really still isn't. (laughs) It's a mess. And, And there's a sense in which every day I'm forgetting that Christ who is my life. Because I want to make Rebecca or my kids my life, my work my life, my rest my life, my vacation that I'm lusting about my life, this next book that I absolutely need to have or this band that I need to see, this movie that I've really got to watch. I mean, that's my life. Obsessive compulsive in that way. Because I'm always looking to fill that hole in my soul rather than with Jesus. And my guess is you maybe struggle similarly. Going from one thing to another to try and satisfy you, to try and soothe that part, to try and bring peace and hope, meaning what is it that's going to do that for you? And what he's saying is, when Christ, who is your life, appears. When he appears, you'll appear with him in glory. And I don't know how to unpack that verse anymore because it is startling. It really should startle us. We who live between the comings of Jesus, this verse is saying, when Christ shows up, there isn't any like, worry about being lost in the rapture. There isn't any worry about the left behind. There isn't any worry about, you know, what's going to happen with Israel and Armageddon. It just focuses our eyes on two very simple things. Christ is coming back. And when he comes back, you're with him in glory. And sometimes being reduced to the simplistic is really liberating. Because my guess is, we all struggle with feeling like this life is all that matters. And we show that by how desperate we are to be successful in this life and comfortable in this life and live for pleasure and prosperity in this life. How fearful we are of germs, let alone sickness. How fearful we are of sickness, let alone illness. How fearful we are of illness, let alone death. And there's a sense in which Christians should be resurrection people. We are going to appear with him in glory people. We should be, that is to say, the most unafraid people, the most courageous people, the people that love the most valiantly, that serve the most sacrificially, that open our homes, that pursue mercy and justice, that seek the shalom of Virginia Beach, the beauty of it, the blessing of it. You see, what he's saying is this day is coming when you won't be a broken person anymore, when the pieces will be put back together, when you will be restored into glory with him. And it's going to be earthly and bodily. We'll work there. 
We'll swim there. We'll eat there. That earthly material existence to which we are enslaving ourselves will be fully redeemed then. And that's good news. Because my wife and I don't have to get to the South Pacific in this life. We'll get to enjoy that in heaven. And I don't have to learn how to play the piano or write my novel in this life. You know, I'll be at all eternity to do that. Parenthesis, if you want to see a great glimpse of that, look at Groundhog Day. If you want a glimpse of heaven, look at Groundhog Day. I'm telling you, it speaks to this longing we have to be immortal. To accomplish and grow in aptitude and capacity day by day without fear. That's why I love Groundhog Day. I know you're all thinking, that's like 1982. I know, I know, I know. Get, get relevant. I appreciate that. My kids say that to me regularly. Here's the point. If you're not looking at death courageously, you will live fearfully. If you don't have this hope of heaven, this hope of glory, this hope of where all of history is moving, you will live anxiously. You will watch your MSNBC or your Fox News, depending on your predilection, and you will watch it obsessively. You will look at your stock ticker, and you'll look at your notes, and you'll watch your kids' report cards, and you'll get on the scale, and you'll do it all neurotically. Because this life really has become yours, and it's all that there is, and it's all you're living for. And you see that with how frustrated you are all the time with how disappointed you are all the time. Because guess what? All of these longings won't ever be satisfied. They're all signposts. They're markers pointing you to what's truly coming. You see that hope that we've been given? In the same way we've been given this power and this identity comes through our connection with Christ, through what Christ has done. So at Trinity Church, we're a lot like you in some ways. and others, we're different. I mean, there are a lot of people that are older than I here. We didn't get that forever at Trinity. We prayed and prayed and prayed for people with gray and white hair to come to our church. And one of the consequences of that is I've done very, very few funerals in 13 years as a pastor. Very few. And uh, one of the ones was for one of the rare senior citizens that came to our church. And he and his wife moved into our neighborhood and he had struggled with some blood cancer before but it really seemed to be on the mend. There's a retired Navy fella. Worked with grandfather clocks as his hobby. They moved close to some of their children and grandchildren. Went to Duke for his normal checkup. And it turned out to be bad that his blood counts were all out of whack. And long story short, he had a, you know, the transfusion. You know, they take your blood marrow and all the stem cells and all that stuff. They did everything for this fella at Duke, at, you know, the preeminent place. All for nothing. Till finally he said, I want to die at home. I want to be at home hearing my clocks with my wife and with my kids. And, and I had that rare privilege of being with Lawrence in those last days of his life where we were all standing vigil. And he had these beautiful blue eyes, these beautiful blue eyes, totally bald. And he was sallow and yellowing. You know, his skin was growing more and more elastic at that point. And I would hold his hand and I would say, Lawrence... Jesus awaits you. Jesus is standing to receive you. And he would look at me with those blue eyes, and he couldn't say much. But regularly, Lawrence would say to me, I'm ready, Jack. I'm ready. And he was a Yankee, and he was tough. But he was ready to die, he said, 
for Jesus, because of Jesus. And he became a Christian late in life. He and his wife became Christians in their 30s. And he said to me, the last things he said to me, he said, I've made my peace with God. I am at peace. I'm ready. Those are his last words to me before I'm doing his funeral in Arlington National Cemetery. You think about that. Could you say that? I'm ready. I've made my peace. I don't have to live for this life anymore. This life doesn't own me anymore. I own it because I'm free. Let's pray together. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we do ask that you would show us the beautiful Jesus, this Jesus that has captured our hearts and conquers our souls, that reminds us that we need not live in so much fear and insecurity and obsessiveness, that you would show us that all that we're pursuing is a fool's errand, is not going to redeem or cure us. And so we pray, King Jesus, that you would show us our living connection with you, that we have been united to you by faith and all of your treasure and all of your beauty and all of your righteousness is as ours. And we don't know why you'd love us like that. We don't know why you would be so gracious and generous to us, but we thank you for it. And we thank you that by your spirit we have died with you. And this sin doesn't own us anymore. And we have been raised with you and we are free to live courageously, servant-like in this city. And so we pray, Father, give us a sense of our identity in Christ, of our hope with you, of the great hope we have in Christ. We pray this in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.